So I, I intended actually to take this whole chapter, Judges chapter 9, in one sermon. Let's take it as a single unit, uh, but it turns out it would take far too much time to do that. Uh, far too much time than we normally allot for ourselves here on a Wednesday evening at least. So instead we're going to break it down to maybe two or to three different sermons. And I'll try to stick to the natural breaks in the text, which we'll explain in just a little bit. But we have 57 total verses in this chapter tonight. So that would have been like a lot to try to take in one Wednesday evening. But it's chapter nine is interesting because in this whole segment, this whole chapter, it encapsulates the next cycle in the story of the judges. But it's much different than anything that we've had to deal with so far, at least. The chapter itself is dealing with one big event. And behind it all, behind everything happening, what we end up seeing is that God is totally in control. He's absolutely sovereign, even though from a human standpoint, it seems like that might not be the case. So that's kind of driving everything that's happening in chapter 9. And actually, from a human standpoint, you might even wonder where God is in all of this, actually, in this whole account. Because from chapter 8, verse 34, which is right near the end of chapter 8, the end of this last section, all the way through chapter 10, verse 6, God is not mentioned by his personal covenant name. You see that normally in the Bible with the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Remember, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's how the authors are letting us know, or the the translators, I mean, are letting us know that's the personal covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. It's different than capital L-O-R-D, right? That's usually Elohim or um, in the Septuagint, Adonai. So it's not mentioned at all from 834 to 10.6. Or it's 835 to 105. And it's not that God isn't mentioned at all in this section. He is, but it's always with the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the general word for God. So from 835 through 105, it's just God is mentioned, but just as Elohim. And the personal covenant name is not used. And I think that's probably intentional on God's part. That he did that he and when he inspired the author of the text, he did that on purpose because of the mess that's unfolding in this portion. In a way, it's like there's this natural distancing, this natural separation um, of God and the people here because of their sin. So he withholds his personal covenant name from even being used in this whole chapter, Uh, even the end of chapter 8 into the beginning of chapter 10. But of course, chapter divisions are inconsequential, right? In the original manuscripts, there's no chapter divisions or, or verse numbers at all. Maybe, maybe that's the reason because there's such a mess contained here in this section that his covenant name is just not even used. You know, God is holy. He is too pure. His eyes are too pure to even look upon sin, to even look upon wickedness, we read in Habakkuk. And obviously God, he does actually see sin, right? It's not like God is so holy that he can't see sin. He doesn't know sin is happening. That's not what that means. What that means is a, a statement about God's holiness. We can't overestimate God's holiness, but what we often do as people is we underestimate it. We underest, we don't fully grasp how holy God is. And so here Habakkuk uses this figurative language to try to help us understand just how holy God is. He can't look upon sin. He's too pure. He's too holy. He obviously does see it, no, but he's just explaining his holiness. 
So even though God's personal covenant name is not used in this section at all, we'll see that he's still working and that his will is still being done. He's still bringing about his covenant promises as he does throughout this book, the gospel according to Judges. Now, like I said, I want to mention to you guys up front the natural outline of the text, of the whole chapter, um, so that we can use our time sufficiently. We're going to read the whole chapter tonight, actually. We're going to read all 57 verses tonight. I know that's a lot, but it's good to hear the word read. We're going to read it all because I want us to understand the verses that we're dealing with tonight in light of the whole context of everything that's going on. But we won't have time to deal with the last two sections. At least, I don't know if we're going to take the last two sections in one sermon or two. We'll have to see how much how it unfolds when I'm working on it. So the first stage is found in verses 1 through 6. And in that, that's what we'll deal with tonight. And it contains the, the sin problem. So there's a transgression that happens that sets up the course of the narrative through the chapter. Those are the verses that are going to receive our attention tonight. And then in verse 7 to 21, that is a rebuke for the sin described in the first stage. And then verse 22 through 57 is it deals with this long, drawn-out punishment for the sin that happens in these initial verses. So the narrative isn't very complex in that regard. But like I said, um, it's very long, and unfortunately, we have to take it over two or three nights because we don't have enough time on a Wednesday to just do it all in one. So I want to read the whole chapter again so we get the context. And um, we won't read the whole chapter every week uh, or next time or next two times, but just, just tonight we'll read the whole chapter as a one set. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along in chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at, at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself, and all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went out and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim, and he cried out loud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come down from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and you risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative, 
If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. Let them also, or let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubal might come and their blood be laid upon Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him and on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Abed, moved into Shechem, and his relatives and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and they trod them into and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gal, the son of Abed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would this people were under my hand? Then I would remove Abimelech. And I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech, secretly saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And Gaal, the son of Abed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaul spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And then, then Zabal said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Armah, and Zabal drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields and looked and saw people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. And all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it. They entered into the stronghold of the house of el Barith. Abimelech was told that the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, and he took all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and he cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What have you seen me do? Hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. 
Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and the men and the women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the tower, excuse me, to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and it crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And that was a lot to take in at one time, Lord, but help us to be accustomed to taking in big portions of your word that we might understand the, the things that you are wanting us to know. Um, there's a lot of, of blood and sin described in our event, in, the, in this narrative tonight. Lord God, as we look at this first section, we pray for understanding and Holy Spirit that you might apply it to our lives, that we might take from it lessons that we need to know so that you might be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so a lot going on, right? So the the verses that we're going to be looking at tonight, they lead to all of that tragedy, all of that bloody story that's going to take place in the rest of the chapter. And the, the second section is that very interesting parable. Sometimes some commentators call it a fable, actually, but it sounds to me like a parable, the things about the trees and stuff. So we'll, we'll look at those next time. But tonight we're just going to focus on the things that lead up to those events. And obviously the end of this story is um, very violent. What, what happens here in the beginning has a very bad ending for the people in, who were involved. So what's happened, so going back to the beginning of chapter 9, what's led to this is that Gideon has died. Gideon is now dead. And the nation of Israel has turned to their own ways once again. We actually talked about that last week. They've turned back to Baal worship. And even before he died, they were, if you remember, they were wanting to embrace a system of government that was just like the people around them. Rather than be led by God, rather than be guided by God as their king, they wanted to set up Gideon as their king. They wanted to start a monarchy, a an emperor, a king-like structure that the Canaanites had around them. They wanted to be ruled by an earthly king rather than have God be their king. They were wanting to be just like their neighbors, the Canaanites. They were choosing autonomy as an old covenant collective group rather than choosing theonomy. They're choosing to be self-governed, governed by the world standards, rather than being governed by God and guided and led by Yahweh. And Gideon wasn't without sin, of course. He blended in with the world. He wasn't a perfect deliverer. Christ Jesus alone is the perfect deliverer. But if you remember, Gideon rejected their idea to make him king. He was like, no, no, I'm not going to be your guys' king. The Lord is your king, that's what Gideon said. But then he went and he did things that were kind of like the Canaanite kings. He ended up taking a number of wives, and he has 70 sons. Many wives. He didn't tell us how many wives he had, but he had 70 sons. And he even had concubines. And a concubine, if you don't know, is a woman that that he wouldn't marry, but that he would go to for pleasure. 
uh, not a wife, but that he would go to to have his desires met and he would keep around for physical pleasure. And we read last time that by one of these concubines, he had a son by the name of Abimelech. How do you know that? Uh, yeah, a Bible that helps you. I'm going to eventually mention that because Jotham's name is interesting too. It probably tells you what that means as well. So that's where our, our, our section begins tonight. Abimelech is in view. He's a man now. His father is dead and he travels to his mother's relatives in Shechem. Now, Shechem is an important location in the history of Israel. This is a place where a lot of important events have happened. So Leon Morris, in his commentary, uh, he writes that even from a view of nature, Shechem was chosen to be important. He says the city of Shechem was marked out by nature to play an important part in the history of its day. It was situated in a fertile valley between the Mounts Ebal and Gerizim, which we read about Mount Gerizim, uh, which formed a natural link between the coastal plains and the Jordan Valley. Many of the trade routes in that area converged at Shechem, which, standing at one of the crossroads of Palestine, dominated a considerable area of the surrounding countryside. So it's kind of like, can you think of a city today that's important because of its location? Uh, well, San Francisco. San Francisco, right? It's a port city where, a lot, where boats would come in and they would be able to do commerce. and So same type of thing. Shechem is in an important geographical location. And so this natural... Well, not anymore, yeah. This naturally important location becomes the site of a number of important events in the history of Israel, not just the one that we're reading about tonight. Shechem is the location where God called out to Abraham with a promise. If you look in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, this is verse 6 to 7. It says, Abram, so even before he was called Abraham, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the yoke of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we're reading about the Lord fulfilling his promise, his covenant promises and judges, aren't we? Abraham, where this promise was made to him, that's where we are in judges at this very moment even. Before Abraham was even properly recognized as the father of the Hebrew people, before the Hebrew people were even technically a thing, Abraham was a, a pagan from Ur. God made a covenant promise to him at Shechem. And, and, this, and he designated that part of the land actually to his people. He promised Abraham a land and a people. In the book of Joshua, Shechem is designated at that point as part of the promised land. And it's actually in the portion belonging to Ephraim. And it becomes a city of refuge for the manslayer. So one of those, I think it's seven cities of refuge, if I remember right. I'm not sure off the top of my head. But God set up these seven cities where if there was something that happened and you might have accidentally killed someone, you could run to these cities so that you could, your case could be heard by a, a, with a fair trial. What was that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where they can't have it happen. So... Also, um, in Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob, his bones end up being buried at Shechem. So when they took Joseph's bones out of Egypt, they buried his bones in Shechem. So there, there was a covenant renewal ceremony there as well, too. Uh, Joshua, before he died, he had a covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem. 
So a lot of important things happened at Shechem. Uh, so many good things are spoken of Shechem, but it's not like a new Eden. So we don't we we want to be sure about that. Even though there is all these amazing good things that happened there, it's not going to be any greater than the coming new heavens and the new earth that Christ will usher in. Because as we've seen in in our text tonight, this is a place that was not free from temptation to adopt the world's ways, the world's methods. There's a transaction that takes place in our text. If you look at verse four really quick, it says that the men took out money from the house of Baal Barith. If you remember, the Canaanites worshipped a false deity, a fertility god by the name of Baal. There were different kinds of Baals for specific reasons, but the men, the leaders in Shechem, they were indulging in the same sin that Gideon's household was indulging in before Gideon was called by God. Remember what Gideon had to do? He had to part the reason why he's called Jerubbabel is because he tore down his father's Baal statues and Asheroth statues, and then the people of the town were going to kill him for it. But Gideon's dad stepped in and said, "No, no, if you know, let Baal contend for himself if he's a true god." So Shechem is important, but it's important for the wrong reasons. So now, especially, so let's consider what is happening here. Abimelech is your classic, your textbook tyrant leader. He's the son of Jerubal, meaning in other words that he's the son of Gideon. Gideon was called, again, he was called Jerubal after he tore down the, those statues. And so it's at least interesting to note that Abimelech is going in a way to see if, if Baal will contend for him. He's going to Baal worshippers. Baal worshippers who happen to also be the brothers of his mother, Gideon's concubine, and he's looking for help from them. There's no king in Israel at this time, not officially at least. The people wanted to prop up Gideon as a king and, and his sons and his son's son, but Gideon wouldn't let them, formally speaking at least, not in action, because in action Gideon seems to have embraced it, but in word he refused it. But Gideon is now dead, and so Abimelech takes this as an opportunity to essentially steal the right to rule. And so he gives the people of Shechem an ultimatum, which they should have just rejected outrightly. But look at what he says in verse 2. He, he says in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am the bone of, and your flesh. So Abimelech, though he's, he's evil, he isn't a fool by the world's standards. He knows that he doesn't have a right to the inheritance that his brothers should get from Gideon because even though he's a male and typically the males would get the inheritance, he's not a, a full son. He's illegitimate. He's not born to one of Gideon's wives. He's born to a concubine. And so he goes to his people, as it were, and he compels them to choose him over his half-brothers. The people, of course, go along with this plan because the reality is they're wicked. They should have denounced him. They should have said that Yahweh was their king. But they decide to prop up Abimelech as king and give him 70 shekels to get him going. And there's a couple of interesting things about that, I think, as well. Uh, first off, how many brothers does Abimelech have? 70. 70, 70 or 69. If, if Jeroboam had 70 sons and Abimelech is one of them, then he has 69 brothers, or if he's not even being considered a brother because he's only a half-brother, then maybe he does have 70 brothers. It's not clear to me, at least. But it's almost as if they're paying him one shekel per brother because he has to get rid of those brothers, right? 
We read that a moment ago. He takes the money and he hires reckless and worthless fellows, and he ends up killing almost all of his brothers on a single stone, which sounds very gruesome, but uh, ritualistic even, religious, right, on one stone, like they were sacrifices to Baal, as it were. So Abimelech is an evil man, most assuredly. Imagine killing all of your brothers. There's another thing that stands out to me concerning the shekels. And when Gideon began his rule, he was given money to get it going as well, wasn't he? And the point is, even from without a financial view, although in this case the point is made in finances, but serving Yahweh is greater than serving man. Men set up Abimelech with 70 shekels. Gideon was given 1,700 shekels after doing the will of Yahweh as judge. And this and there's this tendency that exists among us as people that goes something like this. That says that, that if I can get the support of people, that if I can gain popularity and prestige among my fellow men, even if, even if it means obeying them contrary to the laws of what God has said, then I should do it. And as people, we think the payout is going to be worth it. We think sometimes that because of our flesh and because of our sin, we think sometimes that the best thing for us is to have power or fame or to simply just be liked in the world. But the payout is actually far less than what we would have received if we follow God. We, all of us, even if you're a Christian in this room tonight or not, we're created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And there's nothing more fulfilling in life. There's nothing more rewarding you'll find out in life than being obedient to him. Sometimes sin can be very powerful. It pulls at us. It compels us. It wants us to give in to it, but it's not going to fulfill you. Following Jesus, trusting in Yahweh, and yielding yourself to him and his will is the only way to truly be fulfilled in this life. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Right after dealing with the problem of storing up treasures for yourself on earth, treasures that were in a place where moth and rust will destroy them. So right after say, talking about that, the very thing that you know essentially I'm warning about right now, trying to have everything your way now, he tells them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Meaning, you know, seeking God and following God, no matter the situation that you find yourself in is always going to be better than any other option. God will provide for you and God's provision for you is going to truly fulfill you. But if you try to be satisfied and find fulfillment in the world and the things that the world offers you, and one, it's going to end bad. We read the ending of this tonight, didn't we? It ends really bad. But two, it's not even as good as what God would have given and what God does give. Even if it leads to your suffering now, it's better to suffer now and please God in our actions than it is to grieve God and please man. We'll talk more about that next time, I think. So Abimelech persuades the people of Shechem to follow his wicked plan. And the people of Shechem, rather than rejecting him, they end up embracing him. They pay him money and Abimelech goes to kill all of his brothers and he almost succeeds. He misses one brother. God is gracious. He misses Jotham, the youngest of Gideon's sons. This isn't the son who, re, who refused to kill the Midianite king from a couple of weeks ago. That was Jether. The name kind of sounds the same. Jether was Gideon's oldest son. Jotham is Gideon's youngest son. Um, 
you know, it would technically be Jotham. Now, since Jotham is alive, who would be expected to rule. That is, if Israel is going to be like the Canaanites and set up a succession of kings. And there's actually an interesting play on, on words with the names here. Adam mentioned it just a moment ago that Abimelech's name in the Hebrew actually means my father is king. Something that isn't actually true of Gideon, though perhaps he softened that role as as he judged Israel, you know, he did things that seemed like the Canaanite kings. But Jotham actually means Yahweh is perfect or, or Yahweh is Lord. And so Abimelech points us to an earthly ruler. And Jotham reminds us that Yahweh is over everything in the world and is always a better option. Yahweh is perfect. And we know Jotham lives and he goes on to offer a parable or a fable against the rulers of Shechem. The story begins bloody, I mean 70 brothers killed, and it ends very bloody as well. We'll have to deal with those aspects at a later time. Let's look at verse 6 and notice a couple of last things. Abimelech has proposed an offer to the people of Shechem. They support it, and Abimelech kills all but one of his brothers. And then we read in verse 6, And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. This is much different than our usual judges pattern, right? Abimelech is made king. That isn't to say that Abimelech is actually the first human king in Israel. It's right to note that the first king is in fact Saul, but rather than the spirit of the Lord coming upon a specific person, rather than the spirit clothing a person like he did with Gideon, this new ruler in Israel is not the Lord's man. This new judge in Israel is not the Lord's chosen one. He's lifted up by the people. He's a false deliverer. He's not chosen by God. In our past examples of the judges in Israel, the person who's exalted is usually one with some reluctance to the job. Or at least, you know, a surprising or an unlikely choice. But here you have a man hungry for power and hungry for authority who works to have himself put there. Now, it's not always bad to desire a position of leadership. But certainly, uh, without question, the way Abimelech goes about it is obviously horribly sinful. Especially because this is the nation of Israel who is in covenant with God. God himself is their, is their Lord and their king. And now a man is essentially usurping the Lord and the people are placing him over Yahweh. Of all places, of all places that it could happen at at this time in Israel's history, by the oak of the pillar at Shechem, which I think is the same place where God made the promise to Abraham to give him the land and people. The, um, the place where God promised Abraham blessing. The place where the covenant was renewed. Here is this treasonous and wicked act being done. It harkens back to a little bit to our previous text in which all of Israel, we read, was going to make Gideon king. But there is one, well, I guess two, actually, I think three differences, actually. Um, number one, Gideon refused in principle, at least. He, They said, we're going to make you king, your son and your son's son. And Gideon said, no, the Lord is king. Well, different Abimelech, he's desiring it. Secondly, Gideon was actually a man chosen by the Lord for the task of delivering Israel. Abimelech has no thought of that about him at all. We read nothing of Abimelech seeking Yahweh, do we? 
Nothing of him praying, asking God for wisdom. What should I do? He just he operates according to his own standard. He does what's right in his own eyes. Thirdly, it was the men of Israel that wanted to prop up Gideon. And here in our text, we only have one group of people within Israel that's lifting Abimelech up. It's not all of Israel, right? It's just the men, the leaders of Shechem. And the rest of the chapter is going to focus on the results from that comes from the choices of Abimelech and the people of Shechem. But there's one more lesson that I want us to see from this account. And that is this, that who, who we desire to lead us matters. And of course, as Christians, we who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, as Christians, we have Jesus's righteousness imputed to us by faith. So the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We absolutely recognize that it is Christ who is leading us. As Christians, we get that. We should, at least. I hope we do. That we're following him, that we're taking up our cross daily in response and out of gratitude towards Father, Son, and Spirit saving us. Not to earn our our salvation, of course, because that's not possible. But even though as Christians, we belong to the kingdom of heaven. Christ is the head of the church. And while we live in in this world, in this age especially, we will have other people over us. We live in a society. We live in a culture where there are orders and structures that God has made. And so even if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you still have people that are leading over you in some capacity, whether in the church as elders or within your government, such as a mayor or a governor or a president. And of course, all of those positions are under God and will be held accountable to God for how they rule. Now, when it comes to choosing leaders, it's not always that easy. Uh, for one, we live in a community, so sometimes you can't do anything to prevent a bad leader from coming to power, but God's word does instruct us on how we should choose those who lead us. And choosing a leader that fails to live up to God's standard is going to end up in a disaster for you. That's going to happen for the people of Shechem. We'll get to that next time or the time after that. But what sort of quality should we look for in a leader? What kind of character should we, de- should we desire and should we search for in those people who we appoint into leadership? Well, the people of Shechem obviously have no clue. They simply noted that they had a physical claim to Abimelech and that because of that physical claim, I guess that makes him better than the rest of Gideon's sons. So they prop him up. But what should we do? Do we just seek to elevate the person that will get us what we want? It matters what we want. It matters what we want, doesn't it? I mean, do we want God to be exalted and pleased or are we simply seeking to please ourselves? When it comes to choosing a leader in church, the Bible is our is our good and helpful guide in doing it. That's not so hard because we have clear instruction from Scripture. I mean, we could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, and then we could turn to, first, or to Titus chapter 1 and to the pertinent text in Acts to know exactly what we're looking for. Same would go for men um, desiring to be deacons. We have lists of characteristics given to us. But Judges hasn't been about choosing leaders in the church, right? It's, it's been about choosing leaders in a political realm. And always it's been God who's been the one who's been choosing the judge who's going to be delivered. But here's an example of when the people choose. Even think of Jesus' own life and um, his interactions with Pilate. This is a unique case because obviously Jesus is going to go to the cross. There's nothing that's going to stop him from going to the cross. But he tells Pilate that the one who delivered him over to 
to Pilate was more guilty than he was. Not that Pilate was resolved from all responsibility. He had responsibility. Remember the exchanges in Judges chapter, or excuse me, not Judges, John chapter 19. It's verse 11. 11 and 12, maybe, or just 11. Just 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So you see, Pilate still has responsibility. He even has sin even in his action. But Pilate would have no authority unless God gave it to him. So here's the point. Civil rulers are in fact God's servants. God's deacon. That's actually what the Romans 13 calls them. They are God's servants for our good. And we see multiple examples of this in the Old Testament, especially uh, Pharaoh, Assyria, Babylon, Cyrus, and others. God raises up leaders, sometimes, and ultimately for the good of his people. It might come through discipline and judgment, or it might come through deliverance. But rulers are appointed by God, and we read in Romans 13 as well. And when they fail to serve God and hold up justice— they are certainly under the judgment of God and will have to answer for every decision, either now or eternity. But how does God appoint them? How does God appoint these rulers that he says he appoints in Romans 13? Well, it's through what we call means. We've talked about this before, but God in his sovereignty rules the world and decrees all that comes to pass. But we actually engage in that with responsibility as second causes as the means by which God accomplishes his will. So rulers are appointed by God, and it always is also done through the people who are living during that time. And so it comes down to our responsibility when we have that choice to make that choice based upon who will be best from our limited understanding that we want to choose a person who would lead in a way that we think will be pleasing to God with God's word as a guide to us in that. So when you look around the landscape of those in political power today, if we're being realistic, if we're being honest, those higher up in power all across the world, the situation looks kind of dim, very bleak. There very well could be God-fearing, and most likely there is God-fearing people in lower civil offices. But when it comes to our choices to vote and engage in the civil sphere at whatever level that is for us, by grace, we cannot make the mistake of the Shechemites. The mistake of thinking that our highest duty is to look out for ourselves rather than to look to be submitted to God in every walk of life. God has given to us this light. He has given to us faith. It's not so that we can just keep it over here and only deal with it on Wednesday or Sunday morning, but so that, so that it can instruct us for every decision that we make in our lives. It's for all of life. Remember what we've been dealing with in Sunday mornings recently? The Corinthians have made the Gnostic, the dualistic error of thinking that their bodies are okay to be used for sin as long as they use their spirit for the Lord. And Paul's overarching point for them is that Christ owns all of us. He's the Lord. He lived for us. He went to the cross as a substitute for us. There on the cross, he made satisfaction for our sins. He satisfied the penalty that was due because of our sin and the guilt that we inherited from Adam. He did all of that, but not so just so that we can only be devoted to him when it comes to church, but through every area in our lives. When you're a son or a daughter, 
when you're a person living as a as a wife or a husband, whether you're an employee or an employer, whether you have your responsibility to appoint uh, someone into office uh, through voting, whatever uh, sort of process you have and whatever um, place you live in, these things all matter. I said, if you're not trusting you, if you're not trusting in Christ tonight as well, what's preventing you from doing that? Remember what we mentioned earlier that nothing will fulfill you like living for God. And so if that's the case, that if you're not a Christian here tonight, the scriptures, which are the word of God, tells us in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth and that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So, so today, by the grace of God, today could be the day of salvation for you. If you believe in him, you can't be put to shame, as the passage says, because of the completeness of Christ's work, there'd be no shame. But when you believe in Christ, Christ gets all of you. The Corinthians made the mistake of thinking that only certain parts were for Christ. The Shechemites make the mistake of not seeking God in all things. But when we become Christ, he owns all of us. He keeps, we don't keep anything from him. So when it comes to your role of choosing leadership, let what the word of Christ says guide you in that. Choose what will please God. Whatever the candidate is, whatever the person is, choose what will please the Lord. Will that person get into leadership? That's up to the Lord ultimately. But your choice matters. And how you choose matters. How you live after God saves you matters. Not because it keeps you saved, but because you're the means that God uses to bring about his will. Every person is. Christians have the the joy of knowing that and accepting that and being a part of it. So seek the revealed will of God in all things. Seek that which is pleasing in him. When it comes to choosing a leader, like we sometimes often have the privilege to do, you know, seek to choose who will be pleasing to the Lord, not who will just simply get you what you want, not according to your own desires. And apply that same structure to all of your life for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we know our tendency to pursue our own desires. Help us to see the danger in doing that. Uh, Let us learn even from these examples in Scripture where we read of people who are technically your people. These Shechemites are within the land of Ephraim, we know. They're people who were in covenant with you in the old covenant. And yet, when it comes to appointing and seeking leadership, they look to be satisfied by the world's methods rather than looking to you. Let us not make that mistake. Lord, we know that the earthly rulers that you appoint over us happen according to the counsel of your will and the foreknowledge of your plans. But we ask that you would help us to be faithful to you in doing your will and that you would cause us to choose what is pleasing to you whenever the opportunity arises for us to do it. Let us be engaged with your will in every area of our lives, Lord God. Help us to not make the foolish mistake of thinking that our spiritual life exists only when we come here on Wednesdays or when we come here on Sunday mornings. But let us understand whatever area, whatever sphere we're in, whether we are a parent, whether we are a son or a daughter, help us understand that you have set forth in your word a way in which we should live at that these every junctions and help us to be faithful to you to do it we need grace lord Uh, we can't do it in our own power we can't do it in our own strength so please holy spirit 
help us. And if there be people in here who do not yet know you, Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would make Christ all the more glorious in all of our eyes, and that you would be exalted. You are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.